Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. The message today really is to those of us who are disciples, to those of us that step out and serve the Lord, to those of us that speak on the Lord's behalf, to those of us who obey him and walk in those things, you'll notice there's a price to pay. You know, in in, in fairy tales, the hero ends up always happily ever after. But in real life, the hero can end up with PTSD. Life's tough. This is a war. This is an issue, isn't it? You step out for God, there's pushback and there's, there's opposition. I'm going to show you a side of, of Paul that you may not be aware of. I certainly wasn't. I mean, I'd read certain things Paul said. I heard them, but I didn't know where to put them. I didn't quite know what to do with them. And then as I get into this passage, I, we begin to see Paul in a season of weakness. In a season of his own struggle as he comes into Corinth, at a level I didn't realize. And then we see the Lord minister to him. And the message today is really simple. The message is today, I'm going to show you Paul and his weakness. And then we're going to see the the loveliness of the way the Lord ministers to him and how the Lord cares for his, his, his disciple. And I want to simply make this point. And he'll care for you and me the same way. We need it. We need Jesus to care for us. We need Jesus to come to us. We need him to speak to us. We can't do this without him. It's not a piety. It's not some platitude you just toss off. It's life, man. It is his breath in our lungs. Father God, would you open the word to us today? We love you and we are grateful to be your disciples. We are grateful to serve you. But Lord, this is a war. And it's harder than we thought. And we ask today that the word of God would give us strength and hope and refreshment. Lord, that your great love for us, your commitment to us as our our shepherd would be so strong and clear. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Grace me to speak your word faithfully, our ears to hear, our eyes to see. And we would bring you hearts of faith, soft and ready to hear that which is true from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 18, we'll look at verse 1. Right down through verse 11. Paul has been, you remember, in Athens. Uh, I mean, remind you how he got there. He has been literally run out from one city after another in Macedonia, northern Greece. Uh, he went to Philippi, had to flee. Went to, Ma- went to Thessalonica, had to flee. Went to Perea, had to flee. Finally, they took him out to the, to the beach and put him on a boat and got him down with, a, with, with some people uh, traveling with him. Uh, took him down to Athens, helped him get settled. And then those uh, Bereans sailed back to, to, uh, to their own home. Paul has been down in Athens alone. He's been very brave. Uh, he's gone through this tremendously demonic city and has preached, has gotten souls. Some rather remarkable people. One of the 
Areopagus judges, one of the judges of the Areopagus court, uh, followed Paul and became a Christian. Uh, a prestigious woman named Damaris. We don't know what she did, but prestigious woman came to Christ. Paul has not had, however, the kind of results. Apparently, nobody in the synagogue that we know of has joined. Uh, He had tried there. And so he probably left a a small house church in Athens. He, I think, leaves Athens because he's run out of money. Uh, He hasn't, he's he's simply, I think he's destitute, actually. I think you're going to see that Paul, at this point, has become very poor, Corinth is where work is. Corinth is the the industrial political center of this whole area of Greece. Uh, It's where work is. It's about 50 miles down the road. You go to the west for the most part, uh, uh, around the Saronic Gulf there. There's a ferry undoubtedly between Athens and, and, uh, and, and Corinth. And Paul has gone down here, moved locations. Luke will actually use that word. He didn't say he just departed. They dumb things down in the translations. They simplify it to sort of like the simplest, most common word they can find. But he says he actually changes living location. So what he's doing is he can't afford it anymore. And he's moved, I think, down to Corinth. So all of this has gone on. But Luke doesn't show us really what's happening inside of Paul. But Paul does. And I want you to see that today. Here we go. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He, spent, he focuses at this point almost entirely on that synagogue. But when they resisted, and blasphemed, and I'll, I'll repaint that picture a little later. He shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, to the nations. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in our Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not, why don't you read that with me out loud? Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And then Luke says, he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I'm going to take you, I want to rebuild this in your mind. I want you to see the full picture. So this first portion of my sermon, I'm going to take you through the details so that you have a feel for what's happening. You sense it and feel it, then then we will apply it to our lives. Here we go. Paul was a human being with, with strengths and weaknesses. He was incredibly brave. 
At times, he seemed fearless in preaching the gospel. As we read through the book of Acts, we've often watched him pursued by angry mobs, and he didn't always escape. On occasion, they caught him and stoned him or beat him badly. Yet he always seemed to get up and march off to the next city. So it might be hard for us to accept the fact that this great apostle could have moments when he too felt overwhelmed, when the pressure of it all grew too much for him, and when he felt alone and afraid. Would you say alone and afraid? afraid. Yeah, I didn't pick up those words just for fun. Paul says he became alone and afraid. I'll show you. But this was the condition he was in when he arrived in Corinth. So when he began to preach there, and that predictable pattern of anger began to emerge, when the threat of violence grew stronger by the day, he faithfully kept preaching, even though he wanted to run away. It almost hurts to say it, but he didn't want to be hit again. I'll show you how I know that. He had been hit so hard, so often, it had begun to take its toll. But in that season of weakness, Jesus didn't scold Paul. He completely understood how he felt. He'd felt the same way. So he took care of him. He brought people who would stand beside him so he wouldn't be alone. He prompted believers who loved him to send a timely gift. And above all, he spoke to him. And that loneliness and fear left. Luke beautifully captures the change in Paul when he says, and he sat down a year and six six months, teaching among them the word of God. Mine says here, uh, and he settled there. Luke uses a very odd word. He he uses lots of odd words. The man knew knew Greek. But he uses a word that says, he sat down. In other words, after Jesus spoke to him, he had been ready to flee. He'd been ready to run. And when Jesus spoke to him, he settled down. He sat down and preached for a year and a half. May I add, as troublesome as Corinth was, it was one of the great churches. This was one of the powerful, central churches. Out of Corinth comes all kinds of stuff. This was a very important church. And God gave him the strength to sit down and rest and stay there. He was at peace and able to finish his assignment. There are undoubtedly people among us today who, like Paul, have not stopped serving the Lord But inside, you feel alone and afraid. So as we watch the way Jesus kindly and patiently cares for Paul, his weakness actually encourages us. If this great apostle can struggle this deeply, then surely we can too. And if Jesus will come and minister to him, then he will come and minister to us too. Paul's weakness becomes an invitation from the Lord to admit our own weakness and receive his care. While waiting for Silas and Timothy, Paul decided to move to Corinth about 50 miles away in less than a day's journey by ship. Though Athens was the cultural center of Greece, Corinth was its commercial and political center. At that point in time, it was possibly the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Luke doesn't tell us why Paul made the move, but Paul later stated that he was in a, a very di- this was a very difficult season for him personally. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he reminded them that he had arrived in, in weakness and fear and in much trembling. In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He said, when I came to your city, I came to you in weakness 
and fear and much trembling. He'll talk to them about, he'll say, he says, you are all, you're, you're all wealthy and you're all kings and you're all powerful. He said, but we apostles, we're the scum of the earth. He says, we're ragged and poor and hungry. We're, we're abused and, at, at every turn. He's, he wasn't just being poetic. It really was the way he was living at times. And I think this is one of those moments. It's possible Paul's financial resources had run out in Athens. I think it's almost certain. And he moved to Corinth to find work. Luke shows him looking for work as soon as he arrived. Also, he had not yet received any communication from Silas and Timothy, and he was worried that the churches in Macedonia might not survive the fierce persecution to which they were immediately subjected. He did not yet know that his mission there had been amazingly successful. And the response to his preaching in Athens was surely less than he'd hoped for. Yes, he'd had these people converted, but it wasn't what he'd hoped for. And he doesn't know what happened in Macedonia. All he knows is when he was driven out of town because they're about to kill him, his people are now left to this savagery. That's what he knows. He, remember, he, he, he left Luke in Philippi, because they didn't have a pastor. They didn't know up. I mean, they were completely ignorant. So he's got to leave Luke there to pastor that church. And then when he, when he comes out of Thessalonica and Berea, he goes, he's driven out by the violence. But apparently they don't know, they don't recognize uh, Silas and Timothy. So they can sneak around still. So they're sneaking around, going into the meetings pastoring and caring for the Christians, staying below the, below the radar, probably. Uh, what, and they've been up there a long time, longer than Paul thought they would be. He hasn't heard a word. He doesn't know what's going on. For some, though some remarkable people had come to faith there in Athens, there was probably only a small group of believers meeting in a home when he left. Undoubtedly, he would have kept in touch with them by means of the traffic that flowed between the two neighboring cities. It's 40 miles across the water. Uh, Corinth is the, the a huge harbor, big deal, where people come from the, from the west, they come to Corinth, and then the boat is transferred over the isthmus, that narrow neck of land, it's about six miles wide there, and, or, or the goods are put in, in carts and taken over and put in a boat on the other side. So rather than go around the entire Peloponnese, which was a dangerous voyage, they would, they would so you've got, you got traffic flowing. This is a busy area between Athens and Corinth. It must have been lonely for him without Silas and Paul and Timothy. And if we take seriously his statement about being physically weak and fearful, we have to wonder if he was ill during uh, that time or suffering from some sort of physical impairment, being stoned in Lystra or beaten mercilessly in Philippi may have left him with some type of residual damage in his body. Can I just comment a minute? How often have you listened to some preacher or some person who's really self-righteous about it, all upset when Paul says, I asked the Lord three times to take this infirmity from me, but he didn't do it. And they're going, how can a man of faith have an infirmity? You know, and you go through this whole thing. It's all, all, it's all one or the other. It's, people are, 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 are anyway. It's kind of, kind of digital. You know, it's either A or B. I mean, everything is right or wrong. And then think to yourself, the man has been crushed with stones. By how many people? Have you ever been? Would you like to lie on the ground tied up and have people stand above you and throw stones at your face? 
Would you like to be tied, would you like to be stripped naked in front of a massive crowd going, yeah, 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 while, while men hit you as hard as they could with these great sticks, just bloodying you? And then we have the nerve to criticize this man that he might, have a, might, might be injured. It's just awful. It's just awful. Judging from remarks he made to the Galatians. Remember these remarks. His eyesight may have been impaired. He says, you would have taken your eyes out and given them to me if you could have. What kind of thing is that to say? Unless you have eye trouble. And then he signs the letter and says, notice what a large hand I write with. Why do you write with a large hand? You don't see well. He's not blind, but I think he's seeing impaired. You'll also notice he's usually escorted places. Someone's there to take him. I think it helps. But he's been alone in Athens. And he's now coming alone into this city. He's never, I mean, he didn't know anybody. There's no Christians here that he knows of. I think he's going to find two, but there's no Christian work. And he's coming in here with alone, with all of this poor. And I don't know that he can see all that well. Which, if true, would have made his move to Corinth all the more difficult. Whatever the cause, when he arrived, he felt and appeared weak and frightened. So much so that even years later, the Corinthian church tended to show him a lack of respect. Do you notice that? I have read through the, the Corinthian letters and just wept with anger at the way they talked to him. How dare you speak to the apostle like that? Who are you people? I mean, wouldn't you love to be there right now and just give them that? I believe that when he arrived, I think he was literally gaunt and ragged. Paul says, I I didn't come to you with persuasive words. He said, the only reason I I may have got any traction was he said, I I, I spoke the word of God, but with power and with, uh, with, with the miracles of the Lord. He confirmed what I was saying. So the anointing was there. The strong hand of God was on this wonderful man. But he sure didn't look the part. And Corinth had a hard time respecting him, even years later. It was customary for Jewish young men, including rabbis, to learn a trade. And Paul had grown up in Cilicia, a province famous for making goat's hair tents. So it's no surprise that Paul had been taught that that skill. Jewish guilds had formed around particular, uh, each particular trade, and those who worked in that trade bonded together with a strong sense of brotherhood, even to the point of sitting together in a synagogue. So it would not have been difficult for Paul to locate Ju- the Jewish tent makers in Corinth, and such a, in such a busy city, there must have been plenty of work. He just went to synagogue and looked for his guild. He did, and there would be Aquila and Priscilla. Paul soon met a Jewish tent maker named Aquila. The man was originally from Pontus, a region along the southern shore of the Black Sea, but until recently had been living in Rome. Apparently, while he was there, he had met and married Priscilla, a woman whose name implies that she was a member of a distinguished Roman family. There was a famous family called the Gens Prissa. She's probably Priscilla. She's a daughter of an aristocratic Roman family. What is a nice aristocratic Roman lady doing marrying 
a Jewish tent maker from Pontus. Where do you meet a man like that? Church. Yeah. That's where stuff like that happens. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of you, how many amens here we have for that? Yeah. So in a, in a place where there is no Jew or Greek. She's, all kinds of churches in Rome. What was happening was that the gospel had gone to Rome early on, back from Pentecost. There had been Roman proselytes and Jews who had been there on the day of Pentecost, who were, were part of those 3,000 who were getting baptized. Actually, there were people from Pontus as well. So there's no mystery as to how, how uh, uh, Aquila would have gotten this. And somewhere in all of this, they've been in Rome with this, the tent-making business. He's met, he's met her. He's married this lovely lady. Uh, they have a business together. And then what was happening, it, what you've watched happen with Paul, where the riots break out, where the anger breaks out, all of that, it was going on in Rome too. So as Christianity grew in Rome, the synagogues are exploding to the point that the, finally the Roman, the Roman emperor says, I've had enough, get out of here. All of you, get out. I don't want you in my city. So Christian, Jew, everybody, out. How do I know that? I give you the reference in the Bible study. You can find it. I think it's back in 177, somewhere in there. Suetonius writes this, the historian. Uh, he said they were having riots over, over Christus. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. We've been, part, we've been in the middle of trouble for a long time. The man was originally from Pontus, a region along the southern shore of the Black Sea. He'd come to Rome. Apparently, he met Priscilla, I said all this. About a year prior to this, the emperor Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave the city, probably because he'd grown frustrated by the rioting which was erupting in the Jewish community. Following the great outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, baptized and Spirit-filled Jews and proselytes had carried the gospel back to Rome, and as a number of believers grew in that city, it experienced the same type of violent rioting Paul had faced nearly everywhere he went. Luke doesn't tell us if Aquila and Priscilla were Christians before meeting Paul. But it seems likely they were. Aquila may have heard the gospel in Pontus and believed in Christ even before going to Rome. And where better for a Jewish tent maker, an aristocratic Roman lady to meet and marry than in church in Rome, where there was no longer any Jew or Gentile. Paul never refers to them as his converts. And they were, exhibit a level of maturity and partnership in, with Paul in ministry, which seems to go far beyond what we expect from new converts. Do you, do you, do you notice that? He's going to leave, in, he's going to do the year and a half and all there in Corinth. And then he's taking Aquila and Priscilla with him to do the next church plant. And they're going to Ephesus. Now, Paul isn't going to stay. He completely trusts these two. So he takes Aquila and Priscilla to start the church and start the whole work in Ephesus. While he then goes on down to Jerusalem, back to, back to Antioch. He's, and makes another, another journey through the upper country and, and, and through, through what's today Turkey. He's got all of that ahead of him. But he leaves them there. That's not brand new believers. That's not brand new believers. That's, that's a mature couple. However, if they were Christians before coming to Corinth... It does not appear that they've been proclaiming Christ. Now, they're very recent in coming. Because Paul would later on remind the Corinthian church that it was he who had planted the church in their city. And that he was their spiritual father. One more. When he arrived in Corinth, Paul needed a job and a place to stay. And this couple provided him with both. They rented him a spare room and uh, put him to work in their business. Initially, Paul worked all week and then dialogued in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and God-fearing Greeks. 
But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, they brought with them a financial gift from the church in Philippi. Do you recall us saying that? Yeah. Now you're going to see the effect of it, which released Paul from having to work so that he could devote all his time to preaching. Let's summarize what we just saw. So Paul arrived in Corinth, worried, lonely, disappointed in himself, physically weak and in serious financial need. The greatness of this man is shown not by the fact that he was somehow able to function without the, without the human weaknesses that afflict us, the rest of us, but by faithfully beginning to preach in spite of them. Paul isn't great because he does, so he's above all the temptations of all the worries, all the weariness, all the stuff you and I struggle with. He, we put people on pedestals, don't we? This is St. Paul. And we, we put him on a pedestal and we just assume Paul didn't face what we face. Nonsense. The greatness of Paul isn't that he didn't feel the fears and the weariness and struggle with, with even poverty. The greatness of Paul is he preached anyway. He didn't, he didn't stop. A predictable pattern. As usual, Paul initially focused his preaching on the synagogue, but as had been the case in one city after another, it didn't take long for opposition to arise. To describe what happened, Luke uses a word which pictures one army lining up in order to engage another army in battle. He may have chosen this word because Paul was confronted by a line of angry men who prevented him from entering the synagogue and who threatened to hurt him. The word Luke uses here, Paul comes one day to the synagogue and I think here is a, here's a line of men standing across this thing going, you're not coming in. I wouldn't be surprised if we got clubs or some sort of physical thing this is, it's, 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 he uses the word of an army lining up to, to face another army in battle. So Paul shows up and here this is. And then what does Paul do? I mean, he's, I, I need, you need to see this. This has happened everywhere he goes. It's a here we go again moment. I know where this goes. We're going to have this and pretty soon the riots. Will they catch me this time and beat me to death? Or what will happen this time? But he doesn't, he doesn't fold. He, doesn't, he stands in this moment. And the first thing he does is he shakes out his robes. Did you see that? He shakes out his robe. That's a prophetic symbol. You see it in Nehemiah. I give you the reference. It, Nehemiah, it, it means, and so shall God shake you out of his robes on the day of judgment. All right. So he, so he makes that prophetic judgment. And then he says, and your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. Now, you know, he's, he's, he's taking that out of Ezekiel. I am not responsible for your souls. I have told you the truth. I have warned you. I have spoken the gospel to you. You're rejecting it. You're, the moral responsibility for your death is not on me. I've done my part. He added, from now on, I will go to the nations. While walking past them, so, so here's what Luke says. Okay, so this, this goes on. And then it says, Luke, Luke tells us, he strode past them and went into the next house to the synagogue. And I mean door to, wall to wall. It's, it's, that's the word. 
So he right into the next house, this, the next door house to the synagogue, he walks right in there. It was owned by a Greek man named Titius Justus, who had been attending the synagogue and had responded when Paul preached the gospel. To avoid violence, Paul stopped attending the synagogue, but he didn't go far. He began holding meetings next door, undoubtedly with the hope that none of his Jewish, pardon me, more of his Jewish brothers and sisters would grow curious and come in and listen. And they did. And one man who came along with his entire family was the chief elder who supervised the services in the synagogue. That's Christmas. He's the one responsible to see that everything's done according to tradition. He believes, his, whole, his wife believes, the whole family believes, so he's got the, the chief elder of the synagogue comes, and later on, the next chief elder will come. So they, they, you can see the tension. As time passed, many Christians came into that house to listen to Paul. Many, many Corinthians, excuse me. And they believed and were baptized. On one hand, Paul must have been delighted so that, that so many were coming to Christ, but on the other, a growing church right next door to the synagogue meant that, te that tension between the two groups would grow. And based on past experience, it was only a matter of time before the situation exploded into violence. And as brave as he had been in one violent situation after another, Paul had become weary of being beaten. He began to dread the violence that would surely come. But before that fear grew so strong, it took control of him. Jesus came to him at night in a vision saying, here's what he said, do not fear, but speak. Do not become silent because I am with you. And it literally says, and no one will hit you to injure you. Isn't that, path isn't that pathetic and, uh, that he has to say such a thing to Paul? No one is going to hit you to damage you, to wound you, to hurt you. Because, for I have many people who belong to me in this city. Now, that's a statement worth looking at all by itself, isn't it? No, I mean, here, here's, the, here's, here's the gospel arriving. <laughs> and, Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, I have a lot of people in this city. I have a lot of people in this city, and I'm going to protect you. There has to be a rhythm in our lives between giving and receiving. No one except God, can be a constant source for others. Those who give must receive. Those who serve must be served. Those who love must be loved. Those who teach the word must hear the word. Those who heal must be healed. And this is especially true when it comes to ministry. Opposition and internal struggles are always there. Even the strongest resolve will be worn down. People who minister must continually be refreshed in order to keep going. And we must not become isolated. The pressures are too much for one person to bear alone. We must always be a part of a ministering community. Please notice, Paul is alone. It's, it's circumstantial. He hasn't planned to be. It's out of his own generosity that he's taken his own team and left them in these churches. He loves those churches. They need. He feels they need uh, Timothy and Silas more than he does. But he's spending weeks, months, wandering along alone in Corinth. And now down trying to find work. He's alone. And it's, it's taking its toll. It's taking its toll on him. 
These truths are like the laws of gravity. They are unchangeable. No one escapes. Luke is very respectful in the way he describes this moment of struggle in Paul's life. But Paul is brutally honest about it in his letters. He says he arrived in Corinth weak, fearful, and trembling. Yet if Luke didn't show us all the gory details of Paul's struggle, he did show us the most important part. He showed us how Jesus cared for him. We'll learn a lot about our needs if we observe how Jesus cared for Paul. When Paul was weak, the Lord gave him the things he knew he needed. What were they? Number one, people who do what you do. Would you say that? Paul already had a lot of people in his life. But at that moment, he didn't have the right kind of people. He had people who loved him and needed him. But he didn't have partners. People who shared the same call. People who understood what he was doing and what he was up against. People with enough history and knowledge to minister to him. Silas and Timothy were still in Macedonia. Luke had remained in Philippi. So Jesus did two things. First, he provided Paul with a divine appointment. He needed a job and a place to stay. He needed a safe place with people who would be loyal and help him. Is it any accident that Aquila and Priscilla had just arrived from Rome and had a room or maybe a tent and a job available? They would become two of Paul's dearest friends and partners in ministry. And second, Jesus saw that Silas and Timothy arrived soon afterwards. He restores people to him. People who do what you do. Boy, I think it was five or six years ago now. I had a a young pastor ask me and he said, would you mentor me? And I said to him what I said to a lot of people who'd asked me that. And I said, no, uh, no one mentored me. You know, buck up. I don't know how to mentor. And I didn't. I mean, I didn't have any modeling. I didn't know how you did this. I'm busy. And all I knew of mentoring, and I'd read some of these books, you know, and, and, and I, whereas I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to hang around with guys, you know, and I'm thinking, hang around with guys? I don't get to hang around with my wife. Why would I, like you, you know? Um, I am, my life does not, not available to that. I can't take you everywhere I go and into all, the, all these things. It's, it's just not appropriate. So I don't know how you do that. No. Find somebody else. And I'd said this to him a couple of times. And then one day he, he asked me and he said this and he said, would you give me 30 minutes a year? And it wasn't in your face, you mean old man. He wasn't, he wasn't being that way. He, he totally meant it. And that's what hurt. He said, would you give me 30 minutes a year? And I thought, oh, this is pathetic. This is pathetic. Something's really wrong here. And I said, let, let, me, let me ask the Lord. Let me talk to the Lord about this. I said, I'll, I'll get back to you. And I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, you know, I don't have any time for this. And this is, you know, I... He's asked, and I just needed to check in with you. And, and you, don't, you, kind of, you don't want me to do this, do you? You ever pray those prayers? Yeah, I have. And the Lord simply said this, and he said this to me before. He said, uh, do something. He doesn't fill in. He doesn't anything else. Just do something. All right. 
So I think, well, all right, what am I going to do? What, I mean, what can I do? And I thought, well, all right, I can have a meeting maybe once every other month. And I got to put it on a day where I can do that. Where would I put it? And, I'll, and I decided to start at 9.30 in the morning so people could drive. And I decided to take the first hour and worship so we could press in and we wouldn't just be a bunch of carnal guys in the, or gals in the room, you know, just all. So we worship. And then I would talk about whatever was on my heart. You know, just, I'd mentor, whatever that means. And, 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 and I, would, I would talk and then I'd serve him lunch and let him go by about by two o'clock. And I said to this guy, I said, all right, I'm going to do this. And I said, and I'm not going to advertise. This isn't some deal I'm trying to promote. But I said, if there's others who want to do this, you, you can let them know. And I said, by the way, you're responsible for all the communications and everything else. This is your idea. <laughs> He's still doing it too. Yeah. And, and now that was, that was easily five years ago. Maybe We have now uh, 30, 40. Um, I can have 40 young pastors in there, mostly young, some, some older, men and women, may I add, uh, who will come. They'll drive from eastern Washington. They'll drive from Centralia. They'll come from all over the place uh, th- through, through the snow and stuff. Why? I, I know why. They long to be with others who do what they do. Pastoring has all the pressures, all of the difficult things. You have, people, you have all kinds of people that love you. You have all kinds of people that need you. You have all kinds of crisis relationships. You have all kinds of decisions to make. All kinds of pressures that are on you. But you, don't, you need a place where people do what you do. They're not impressed with you. They're, they're not needing from you. They are, they are able to talk to you about what you go through. I don't, we don't have any microphones going so that they can say what they need to say. And boy, they do. We have had cussing, um, and, you know, and I only did that once. No, <laughs> that was a joke, folks. I don't, I don't do it that there. And they, we've had tears, we've had anger, we've had boom, 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 you know, this whole kind of thing. As, as, and then what's happening, I notice, is these, these pastors have bonded. They email each other, they go on vacations together, they preach in one another's churches they, because they understand what each other's feeling. Now, you have people who do what you do. What is the ministry? What are the things that God has put into your life? Being a mother, being a father, being a minister, uh, uh, working and uh, bearing Christ in the workplace. There are people who do what you do and they understand what you do. You don't have to explain it to them. You don't have to, you don't have to apologize for your struggles. They have them too. And you've got that kind of support. That's what Paul didn't have. And may I say to you, I believe that all successful ministry, if your life is going to go on and continue for a long time in ministry, you have to have those people in your life. And you have to get together with them. And let them pray for you and encourage you and, 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 and tell you to buck up. You know, or, or tell you that they understand fully what you just went through. You need people like that. You need it. I need it. These pastors need this. We all need this. We need people who do what we do. Yes, we need other kinds of people too. Let me ask you, do you have it? Do you have it? Or are you operating alone? And if you're operating alone, I can tell you almost without, unless you're just the very exceptional individual, which you're not, (laughs) 
me neither. I can tell you, you're going to get sad, afraid, and alone. It's all going to seem too much to bear. Anyone say amen or uh? Yeah. Hallelujah. All right. Number two. They, the Lord Jesus made sure that Paul heard a good report. Paul had been so worried about the churches that he left behind in Macedonia. And he, and he was probably discouraged by how few he had reached in Athens. So when Silas and Timothy arrived with great news about the churches, he, he had suffered so much to plant. Paul was deeply encouraged. It had been worth every blow, every insult, every humiliating flight for his life. He had not labored in vain. You know, you'll minister and you'll somehow, you'll, you'll witness to somebody or pray for somebody, you'll minister to somebody, and then it looks like the, they just go absolutely off the tracks. And you think, did I do all of that for nothing? You know, the, the, the steps you've taken, the people you've invested in, the people you've prayed for, the, all of that, and then it looks like it's absolutely for nothing. And then somewhere along the line, the Lord will see that those Good reports come back to you. By the way, that person you gave up for lost, did you know they're pastoring a church right now, <laughs> you know, in such and such a place, or they're, uh, they're serving the Lord in this way? How many have had such reports come back? People you've sown in, people you've spoken to, ministries you've done, the way you thought, I don't know what this was all about. And then God sees to it that you hear the good report, that, that what you sowed, Paul, what is how Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God got the increase. You get to see that blessing. Number three, a loving gift. Luke doesn't mention the financial gift Silas and Timothy brought with them from Philippi. He only says that when those men arrived, Paul was able to devote himself to preaching the word. But Paul sure mentions it. It was more than money to him. It was a gift of love from people who believed in him. It's quite possible that Paul was so poor at that time that he was ragged. Apparently, he looked so bad, the Corinthians had a hard time respecting him. So when that gift came from Lydia, remember her? The jailer and Luke and others in that church, it allowed a weary man, this guy's not young anymore, and he's working six days a week. And then preaching on the Sabbath. A weary man to stop sewing tents six days a week. But more than that, it told a lonely man that he was loved. We have a, a, a mission thing we've done for 20 years. And that is we'll go in the summers, we'll take teams and we'll go to churches. And we will just take churches that we think um, there's an anointing and a grace there, but they just need a helping hand. They just need somebody to lift them up. We have been to, clear down to Arizona. We have been as far as, as uh, Butte, Montana. And I don't know if we've gone farther than that. I think maybe we've, we've, we've gone about every, you, can, you have a hard time naming a town in southern Idaho that we haven't been in, maybe twice. And... Those southern Idaho churches have been a real grace to us in a sense. But those, those pastors are all of them. I don't, think, I don't think I know any one of them that's full-time except Idaho Falls. Um, they're all bivocational. 
They all work all week and then pastor on the weekends and then counsel when they get home and call people and visit people and then work all week. Southern Idaho is more LDS than is in Utah. We have actually worked on churches in towns with, which are 97% LDS. So these are, these are, are, are communities that, that don't receive them in that sense. But those churches are growing. Those churches, those pastors are there, but it's a hard walk for them. And I've seen what I'm going to tell you more than once, but this one, this one I'll, never, I'll never get this picture out of my mind. We, were, we had gone this particular year, and we were actually ministering, building, uh, working on the buildings. We work on the buildings. We do VBSs. We do stuff like that, all kinds of things, just to, just to strengthen those churches. And so we had gone to three places that year. And, and I was on one, and we were in this little, it's a little church, and I won't mention the town. But the little church building was sort of an office thing that they had purchased from a potato processing factory that was right there. And the, the building was located right by the sludge pond for the potato processing. And the, it was in pretty bad shape. And we had, uh, I remember we re-roofed this thing. I, we think we painted the outside. We uh, remodeled walls inside. We, we did a sound system. We landscaped. We put a handicap access ramp. Uh, we did the uh, sign there was a lot that went on in our team. I, we had, I think we probably had 100 people on these different places. or I don't remember how many we had, but we had a good team at, our, at that one. That's the one I was at. And I, the, the last day we were there, you know, we'd finished pretty much. We had reoriented the auditorium. It really looked beautiful. And we'd done the, a, a classroom and built a pulpit for this pastor. And you need to know that the pastor had had surgery. Uh, he had lost both his legs below the knees and was on crutches. I mean, this man's pastoring like this, you know, doing all of this in this very, very difficult community. And I, and I was over working on something. There's always one more thing to do, you know. And I'm over there working on something, and I caught him out of the corner of my eye. And I, I, I never get through this easily, excuse me. I watched him coming in, and he just... Looking around, you know, and, and he came over and he looked at his pulpit and he kind of handled it gingerly, you know. And he looked at this thing and we had a seat for him. So we sat on it. Then I watched him. He put his head down and he just sobbed. I know why. It wasn't that he had a new pulpit, it wasn't that his building was nice. Here's what, the, here's what we said God values you. Your ministry here in this little town by this sludge pond is so important to him that he sent this group of people all the way from Seattle to help you. God loves you and he cares about you and he believes in what you're doing. That's what came with that gift from Philippi. Yes, he needed help. But that wasn't the point. It was, you may be in the middle of all kinds of stuff, but they love you. You're their brother in the Lord. They'll never forget you. 
Jesus gave Paul a fresh call. It's not that Paul hadn't heard Jesus speak to him before. We know that. He had. But there come times when ministry's hard, when obstacles seem huge, when we no longer feel up to the demands of it all, when we need to hear him call us again. It's not that we don't know what he'll say. It's that our loneliness goes deeper than any human can fill. I mean, you have people say, no, you're so called, you're so good, God uses you, don't you see it? And you appreciate what they're doing. But ultimately, you need to hear him say it again. It's that our loneliness goes deeper than any human can feel. We need to know that we're still on track. That he's pleased with what we're doing. And that he's ultimately in charge of what's happening to us. That he won't let us be overwhelmed. That there are limits to what he will allow us to suffer. And we need to hear him speak a word of hope. Assuring us that he has many people in this city and there are things Jesus spoke these are the things Jesus spoke into Paul in effect he gave him a fresh call I tell you I need that don't you I need him I, I, I don't it's not that I don't know what he'll say but I can't just ride on memories of what he used to say or what happened there have come moments, I've just got to hear him again. Am I on track? One of my, I have this little thing I, I pray for with, and, and I got things I'm writing down on. One of the things is, Lord, can I just ha- can I know your approval? And by that, I don't mean, you know, I, I'm not looking for f- any kind of thing. I just need to know that God approves of the way we're going, what I'm doing. And if not, please correct me. But I need, you, I need to see it from you, not just that, not even just results. I need to see, Jesus, do I please you? And, and he speaks those words. Paul, what did he say to Paul? He says, now, I don't want you to be silent. I want you to keep speaking. For I am with you. I'm with you. And then he said, and no one will strike you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Paul, I've got a boundary around you. You're traumatized. You're probably PTSD. I am not going to let them hurt you here. I have people who will protect you. I, will, I, I, I am your Lord. I will cover you. Minister here. I had to admit last week I was, that was not an easy sermon for those of you who are here. You know, and just all of the politics and the stuff that goes on with all of that. And I thought, Lord, what will, what will this bring? You know, where will we go? And I was right there. I, don't, I think it was the nine o'clock service. And I was worshiping. And the Lord brought to my mind uh, David fleeing from Saul. And he said, they never did catch him, did they? And I said, no, sir, they didn't. And he said, they won't catch you either. <laughs> Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But he said, I don't want you running around frightened on the defensive. I don't want you. I want you aggressive. But you listen to me carefully. Let me lead you. And you'll be fine. That does a lot for me. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? You and I need to hear Jesus speak. Paul did right then. He was overwhelmed. He'd been hit too much. Here came the cycle. The anger. The line. The whole bit. Here we go again. 
And he wasn't ready for another. And Jesus says, no, no. I put a boundary around you. I defend you here. Now you settle down. I'm with you. You need that too. I don't know what you're up against. You need to hear it from him. I can say it. Your friends can say it. Your family can say it. Everybody can cheer you on and, you know, punch you on the shoulder and say you're doing great. You need to hear it from him. That's where those times, what's what OSL, I've been, I try to get you all into OSL. One of the main skills I want you to have is so that you're learning to study the Bible in the mornings. Why morning? Because you don't want to, I mean, other, if you do it in the evening, you spend your, your whole prayer time apologizing. <laughs> don't we? Yeah, yeah. Evening's whining. I'm so sorry I said that. I don't know what I was thinking. You know, so it's far better to pray in the morning going, watch my mouth, watch my mouth. Help me. You know, so when you have that time in the word and the bottom line, I mean, I was doing it this morning. Bottom line, uh, I just need him to speak to me afresh. Not, not just, do I know theology? Do I know these truths? Yes, I do. I don't need that now. I need him. I need him. Not, not, not just truths. I need him. And, and there he was this morning. And he will be for you. He will be for me. That's what Sabbaths are about. That's when you take a day and you, you take hours and just sit with the word and the Lord. Drink green tea, I recommend. And, <laughs> and, and just sit there and, and let him talk to you. Let him refresh your vision. Let him write those questions out. Have those dialogues. That's what, you, if you want to keep going for a long time, if you want to, to, to endure in what God's called you to do to the point that you'll see the fruit of your labors, you must develop these kinds of patterns in your life. You can't go on. You have to have community and you have to have Jesus speaking to you regularly. Ministering to us. God is not surprised by our weaknesses. The Bible says, and why don't you read this with me? Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Don't you love that? He said, this is the people I made out of dust. I took dust of the earth, mud, and I made Adam. And he knows our limits and sets, our, uh, sets boundaries around us. Paul would later assure these same Corinthians, no temptation or testing. Now the word, when I, when I do that, the word means either one. No temptation or testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, tested beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, the test will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God, your father, watches over you. He knows what you can take and what you can't take. He knows where your boundaries are. And your father, as a believer, your father will see to it that you will never be caught in a situation where you are overwhelmed. There will always be a way out of this thing. He will always open a door for you. He will always. He promises you that, that he will never let you be trapped and be overwhelmed. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. After all, Jesus truly understands what we're feeling in those moments. He himself endured the very same things. 
Hebrews says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's experienced this. Jesus has experienced this, the, the attacks and the weariness. But that Garden of the Gethsemane thing, he, he, that was just literally a breakdown. He went into some sort of, of, of just emotional breakdown. He, he totally knew what they were going to do to him. He totally knew what was ahead of him. Some people go, oh, no, he wasn't afraid. Yeah, right. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the selfless thing in the face of fear. If you don't have, any, if you're not afraid at all, you're probably a lunatic in some of those situations. And, and that kind of insanity is not courage. There are people who are so, so, so drugged or something, they don't have any fear, but that's not courage. Courage is when everything in the body and the emotional condition is going, no, get out of here. And you say, I got to do this. I got to do this. And that's what our Lord did for us in ways that are beyond our understanding. But he calls us in our own ways to do it too, doesn't he? So he understands. Therefore, says Hebrews, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And after we've been strong for everyone else, after we've been attacked, after ministering alone, after speaking about Jesus, after preaching the word, after ministering in the power of the spirit, after confronting injustice, standing for truth in the face of ridicule and resentment, after speaking the truth in love, seeking to reconcile a broken relationship, after walking with someone through surgery, death, divorce, tragic personal failure, we can find ourselves feeling alone and afraid, but we're not. Jesus will, come for, will care for us as surely as he cared for Paul. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.